thus far. Great song choice this morning, Pete. I uh, especially appreciated that, that first song that we sing, uh, Lift High the Name of Jesus. It was one that we, we sung fairly often over in step. And the second verse of that song in particular is, is fantastic. If you, if you remember the words, it says, His power in us is greater than, is greater than this world. To share the reason for our hope, to serve with love and grace, that all who see him shine through us might bring the Father praise. Fantastic words and right on, on, the, on the ball for our sermon this morning. We'll continue in our series of the book of Titus, so I invite you to turn there this morning. Titus chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 10 together. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Word of God says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So that, they may be, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge young men to be sensible, and in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrines of our Saviour, the doctrines of God in every respect." Well, it's, it's great to open up again to the book of Titus. The book of Titus, as you may remember, is, is all about setting churches in order through the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ that is demonstrated in good works. If you remember the last time we opened up to chapter 2, we looked at four of the five people groups mentioned here in this passage. We talked about the graying and the balding, or the older men, how they are to be temperate, dignified, they are to be sensible, sound in faith. We talked about the older and the younger women, and we looked at their roles in God's plan for the perfect family. We looked at the younger men and the characters that we are to have and model as we minister to our families and minister in our church. Four different people groups, and no matter where we fitted ourselves, we talked about the necessity of adorning the doctrines of God or adorning the gospel. The word for adorn, as you may remember, is from the Greek word cosmeto, which is where we get our English word for cosmetic. And it means to make something beautiful out of chaos. That's why we need cosmetic products. (laughs) As Christians, be it men or women, older or younger, We are to show the beauty of the power of a saving God in our lives. We are to show the beauty of the gospel. Let me reiterate again that it's not that the gospel is not beautiful enough on its own. The gospel is the most beautiful 
perfect, ordered thing, period. But as one wise commentator said, we are to be the flowers that adorn the gospel wreath. Flowers adorning the wreath that is the gospel. We adorn the gospel when we demonstrate deliverance from sin, power over sin and temptation. We adorn the gospel when we live lives characterized by purity, power, joy, and blessing. So with that, we can ask the question, how are we adorning the doctrines of God? How do we stack up when we read these verses? Or perhaps a more pressing question, do we behave like we've been saved, like we are a Christian? Are we acting or behaving like the gospel flower that displays its beauty? Being able to answer yes to these questions is vital for us in the Christian life. It's vital for us to live a God-honoring life. The last time we're in our text here, we missed out on verses 9 and 10, so that's where we'll pick up this morning. We'll be addressing the group of people known as the employees. You know, at the, the age of retirement, being 65 currently, if the government don't change that soon, you have lived almost 570,000 hours. Next person to turn 65, I'm not sure who that is. I'd love to see you blow out 570,000 candles, just for the fun of it. Out of those 570,000 hours that you've been alive for, 45% of them you've spent sleeping, which leaves you now with 314,000 hours awake. Sounds like a lot, but I'm told that it goes by very quickly. If you started working full-time at the age of 20... Some started earlier, I know, but, but if you started working full-time at the age of 20, by the time of your retirement, you have spent almost 100,000 hours in the workplace. That means that one-third of your conscious life is spent away from family, away from friends, away from church, and most of that time shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the unbelieving world. If we're perfectly honest... This work aspect of life is the hardest part of the Christian walk. It's often the area that people struggle with the most. It's all well and good coming to church on a, on a Sunday, praising and worshipping God, but Monday through Friday can be a totally, totally different matter. And why is that? Well, there's a fear of being different at work, fear of being divisive, often the fear of being judged as a, as a crazy or a loony person. And because of that, we just want to keep our heads down and we want to get on with our job. If our workmates are, are going out or, or they're talking crudely about their escapades or when they're taking part in business that is not God-honoring, it can be all too easy for us, just all out of fear, to go along with the flow of what they are doing. This is a sad reality for many Christians, and it happens on a daily basis. I know it's been a struggle in my own personal walk with the Lord, especially early on in my days of, of being with the Lord, in my early days of faith. I would rock up to work full of passion for the Lord, whether it be by insult or however, and began to realize very, very quickly that most of the people around me completely disagreed with my faith. The fear of your faith is a very real thing for many Christians in their workplace. So that got me wondering how we even got to that in the first place. If you're going to break down all the insults and, and the ridicule and get to the core issue at stake, 
the question that people will ask is, how do we know that it is real? How do we know that our Christianity is real? And that's a legitimate question to ask. Why would they even need to ask that question? Because millions of people who say that they are Christians live as if they were not. Millions of people proclaim a saving God, but yet demonstrate a life that has not been delivered from sin. This is partly where that hatred for Christianity leads Christians to be ashamed and embarrassed about what they believe. And you know what fuels this? Every time we are in the presence of unbelievers and behave no differently to them, in the workplace, socially, we are only adding fuel to the fire. Quite often I I hear the excuse, well, I'm going to witness to them by being like them. I remember of reading a church, reading of a church here in Adelaide. It, it hosted an evening for men. It was a beer and boxing night as a way of showing the world that we as Christians, we're all the same. Sadly, that is completely missing the point of what it means to live a life set apart, what it means to adorn the doctrines of God. The world can call us hypocrites and they have every right to. And this is not a new problem either. Titus was dealing, Paul was dealing and Titus were dealing with this exact problem. You see in chapter 1 of Titus, in verse 16, it says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. If we say that God is our Saviour, then we better demonstrate a saved life. If you want to see that we are different from the Scriptures, you can turn with me to, to John chapter 15, verse 9, fantastic verse. It says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. As Christians, The world already hates us, but that hate is only added to when we as born-again believers live lives categorized by sin rather than holiness. And this fear we hold on to, this fear of, of insult or fear of embarrassment, it's sin. The Bible tells us to expect persecution, expect ridicule, because we are not of this world. So what should our mindset be instead of fear? If we are to expect it, then what are we to do about it? And to that, I say, first, increase our love and passion for God. Increase our love and passion for God. Second, increase our love and passion for witnessing to the lost. Grow in our love for ministering God's grace to the unsaved world. Why? 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out all fears. Think about the greatest commandment in the book of of Matthew, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. If fear exists in your life, then your love needs perfecting. Your love for God and your love for others has some holes in it that need to be filled. This witnessing to the world 
We commonly call or we use the term evangelism. If you hear that term used or, or at, up here in the pulpit or prayed by someone in the church, that's what it means. It means to be a witness to the unbelieving world. And this is not an option for us as Christians. It's something that is commanded of us in the Scriptures. We have verses like the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Have verses like Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Finally as well, Mark 16, he said to them, Go into the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. These and and many more verses They all speak of witnessing to the unbelieving world, and that is what evangelism is. Evangelism in the Scriptures is described in two ways. It takes place in one of two ways. First, it is done through the faithful preaching of the gospel, which is done by people whom the Lord has gifted for that ministry. This is the first way to have an evangelistic impact. And you may be saying, well, I'm not a good communicator, I'm not good at witnessing, I'm not very bold... I don't know how to get my testimony out. They won't let me say much at my workplace. And all of those are fine. But the second way we see in the scriptures that we are to evangelize is through personal witness. This is essentially living our lives in such a way that it speaks well of the Lord and that it adorns the gospel. For an example of this, we we look to the Thessalonians. They were very capable of doing this. In 1 Thessalonians... Verse 8, they, they basically gossip the gospel through their lives, so much so that all of Macedonia and Archaea had heard of their faith towards God. And that came through their own personal, individual testimony. If you just live the way God asks you to live in your job environment, you will manifest a transformed life. When you manifest a transformed life, it points back to the transformer who is God. Preaching and proclaiming the gospel is critical, absolutely. Romans 10:14 tells us that. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Preaching is important. Proclamation is important. But again, if that's not reinforced by a life that is set apart, that proclamation is tainted. The only thing you are doing is living a life of hypocrisy. Not long ago, now Nia and I were visiting the Kurong bookshop in the city. I couldn't help but notice the copious amounts of, of books that were telling people how to evangelize. In those books, there was an entire section of the store set apart for these books. And in them, there were multiple tricks and tactics, proven theories and proven methods, models for churches and ideas. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent and made teaching people the ins and outs of evangelism. People today are going around telling everyone they know God, using those methods, but all the while they deny Him by their lives. As one commentator puts it, 
No matter how widely you speak the gospel, no matter how you promote it, no matter how many dollars you spend to make sure that the message is heard by everyone or seen by everyone, if there is no credibility in the lives of those who name the name of Christ, the effort is all but short-circuited. It was going on in Crete when Paul wrote this letter to Titus and it is still happening today. People proclaiming to know God but yet deny Him by their lives. Instead of those millions being spent, if those same people were demonstrating the adorning of the doctrines of God, if they were demonstrating a life characterized by holiness, how much more effective would that be? So at the place where you will spend almost one third of your life, instead of walking into work fearful of being different, it's time for us as Christians to put off that fear and instead adorn the doctrines of God. It's time to faithfully witness the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for you and for me. It's time to faithfully witness to the unbelieving world through our own personal testimony of the Lord's work in our lives. It's time to live like we have been saved. God is a saving God and he has saved us from sin unto holiness. And the way that you proclaim that is by living it out daily. 1 Peter 12 1 Peter 2, rather, verse 12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the pagans, so that in the things in which they slander you, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Godly character is perhaps the greatest evangelistic strategy. Paul says, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Shine as lights in a midst Shine its lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Unless there is that kind of credibility and integrity in the life of believers, the message of the gospel will be distorted. So that leads us to, to look at our text this morning, verses 9 and 10 of, of Titus chapter 2. And in it we see five practical character traits to image in order to adorn the doctrines of God. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, urge bond slaves or urge slaves. Now, just briefly talk about this one for a moment. I've had it come up often with unbelievers. They see the word slave there and automatically associate it with negative, in a negative sense or a negative connotation. They say the Bible condones slavery. How can you believe in a loving God that's condoned slavery? It happens often. Now the issue in this passage is not addressing the condition of slavery, but rather it simply says that if you are one who serves another, you have an obligation to live your life so that you draw attention to the power of a saving God demonstrated through you. It's really nothing more than a mere employer-employee relationship, which is part of the whole structure of society. This was the socioeconomic system of the day. Yes, no doubt, many slaves were treated horribly, and, and many lost their lives, most likely. But the Scriptures don't condone that, but rather regulate it very carefully. In fact, being a bond slave back in those days could actually be very beneficial for you. There were rewards for those who worked hard. Many a slave, when it came time to be released in the year of Jubilee, 50 years after they'd been served, 
serving. Most rejected their freedom and desired to stay on and chose willingly to serve out their days with their masters. This employee-employer relationship was very beneficial for society. It allowed for people that have resources to give and share those resources with their workers, thus allowing them to have dignity of work and to make a living. So this text simply says, if you are an employee you have, and you have someone over you, you are to conduct yourselves in such a way that it makes it evident that your life has seen the transforming power of God. So you have five characters to model, five character qualities given that should mark every Christian employee. Quality number one we see is submission or being submissive. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. The Greek word here for subject, hupotasso, it's often used as as a military term, meaning get in line, get yourselves under the authority of the one who is over you. Don't be out of line. And this kind of submission is key to a smooth running of a whole social structure. We see that this kind of submission exists in, in, in marriage. The wife is to submit herself under her husband as unto the Lord. Submission exists in the family. Children are to submit to the authority of their parents. Submission exists with the government. We as citizens are to honor those who are in authority over us. And so it is as well in the work environment. Those who are employees are to be submissive to those who are over them. Submission is incredibly important to a God-centered, God-honoring society. You might say, well, I go to work each day and I obey my boss. This one seems to be a no-brainer. And yes, many are fortunate to be in a work environment like this. But what happens when things start to get rough? What happens when there are unrealistic expectations placed upon you? When others question the authority and encourage it of you also? All of a sudden there is unrest in the workplace and the boss might try and make things more difficult for his employees. Even in those times, what does the text say? The text says, in everything we had to show submission. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So what does submission look like? Well, for a clearer picture, we can turn to several other writings of of Paul. We look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, where it says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man pleases, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Submission is having the right attitude, fear and trembling, and that's not speaking of fearful fear, but rather a genuine respect that you are to have for your boss. Submission is is having right devotion, it's having sincerity of heart. Submission is having the right diligence, being pleasing to God and not to men. Submission is foundational for us as Christians in the workplace. The only time that submission is not commanded of us is when it is in direct violation to the commands of the Word of God. 
Each circumstance is, is unique and requires careful study of the Scriptures. But all this to say, if at work you're being commanded or pressured into something that you know violates your conscience and more importantly violates the Word of God, then there is room for you to step back. And you know what? In doing so, that will be about as great a witness as submission itself. The outcome might be difficult to deal with, but the Lord is sovereign. The end of Ephesians 6 passage, verse 7, it says, With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Submission honors the Lord and it honors the employee. If you are one who shows exemplary submission in your work, then you are adorning the doctrines of God. Secondly, we see a commitment to excellence. Verse 9b, we, have, we see that we are to be well-pleasing. You are to be subject to your masters and you are to be well-pleasing. As well as being submissive to authority, we are also to seek to please the one who is in authority over us. The word used for well-pleasing here literally means to be well-pleasing to God. To be well-pleasing to God, we want to strive for excellence. As one commentator writes, you may attain a certain level of excellence for the sake of your promotion or your income or the security of your job, or to please your boss. But what kind of work would you do if the Lord Jesus Christ himself was your employer? How much then would you strive for him? That's the point here. That's why Paul uses that word. He says, you are to work as though you were employed by God himself. And because you're working for God himself, you are to strive to work hard and work well as if the Lord is always watching. Now, the thing about hard work, more often than not, it can be very easy to begin to take credit for ourselves, to look at what I've done mentality, or look at all I've achieved. Before you know it, the pride of life creeps in, and your efforts pretty soon become your motivation, especially when you begin to get rewarded from it by your boss. But Proverbs 16:19 says, It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. That is what we need to keep in check when we are committing ourselves to excellence for our boss. We are not elevating ourselves above our workmates. We're not out just to get rewarded. The moment you do, your testimony can be questioned. You're working hard as to the Lord so that others might see this and you have then the opportunity to tell them why. Thirdly, the end of verse 9 That over there. The end of verse 9. In order to be faithful witnesses at work, we are not to be argumentative. This literally means not to speak out against. The point being that you are not to mouth off or talk back. You are to be compliant. You are to be respectful. You are to, if you are one who speaks back or disobeys, this is not adorning the doctrines of God. And to be honest, this is one of the areas when we can commonly and it's very easy to slip up how often does someone say something to you and and you feel like just mouthing back off at them or your boss asks something unreasonable of you and you let them know it 
Or worse still, you let the rest of your workmates know it. That's being divisive, that's being opposing, that's being disrespectful, and it most definitely does not honour the Lord. There's always the proper way of saying something or reacting to something. And the moment you fail to do that with Christian love and sincerity that the Lord has commanded of you, your workmates have every right to call you a hypocrite. You bring into question your testimony. As a Christian in your workplace, you must be known for the respect of authority. And when that authority speaks to you, you are to do it. Again, obviously, if they ask you to do something that is against the Scriptures and against the Word of God, you cannot do it. But apart from that, you must comply, no matter whether you believe it to be wise or foolish. So to be respectful, committed to excellence and submissive. And fourth, we have honesty. The Christian in their workplace is to show honesty. We see that in verse 10, not pilfering. Pastor just took us through the series on the Ten Commandments, one of them being, Thou shalt not steal. This is basic, basic to the moral code. There is no exception here. Of course, this does not just mean stop stealing the pens from the office. This goes so much further. When was the last time that you put down your hours for the week and you just added an extra one in there just for good measure? After all, you've worked pretty hard for the week and you deserve it. Or have you ever had to lie to a client? You might say, well, I just didn't tell them the truth. That's a lie. Have you ever covered up a mistake just to save face rather than admitting your fault and accepting the consequences? These are very realistic situations where your faith will be put on display. If you are one who is dishonest and holds back, you are dishonoring the Lord and you are not adorning the doctrines of God in your life. Again, you can be sharing the gospel at work, but if your workmates see you willing to compromise, then they will come to the wrong conclusion. The life that you tell them they need is not being displayed in you. Finally, our fifth characteristic, found in the middle of verse 10. We at work are to be showing all good faith. As one commentator says, The word for faith here is better said as faithfulness, which means trustworthiness, reliability, and loyalty. To be showing good faith is to show that at work you are faithful, you are trustworthy, you are reliable, and you are loyal. Sadly, I think that this this concept has gone in the world today. Being loyal seems to mean nothing. Anymore. My grandfather, he worked for the ANZ Bank his entire working life. He was a lifelong employee. And that sort of thing we just don't seem to hear of anymore. Seems to be this self elevation that goes on in us. I will do what I want to do to get further in life and to meet my needs. And I don't think that that just stops at the workplace either. Loyalty in general, sadly, is a thing of the past. No loyalty from both employer or employee. No loyalty to your marriage partner. No loyalty to your family. No loyalty to your friends. Even no loyalty in the church. Just coming and going as you please. Just one of the number. Thinking and doing whatever you want to do. 
The loss of loyalty moves us further away from God and closer to elevating ourselves and our own needs. Loyalty, sadly, is a thing of the past. But as believers in Christ, our responsibility is to show off Christ, to adorn the doctrines by showing loyalty in the workplace. And that requires hard work on our part. It does not just happen. When you show loyalty, when you show faithfulness, people see that and it is a reflection of the God who saved you. It images who He is, the faithful one who is faithful to His promises. It reflects the very person that you are trying to help them see, God Himself. In conclusion, all working situations I know and understand are unique. There might be a particular area that you're struggling with, one of these things in your workplace. Does displaying these things, though, mean that you can never leave your workplace or change jobs? Absolutely not. If the Lord guides you away from that workplace into another, that's great. But it still remains, wherever we are, wherever we serve, we are to adorn the doctrines of God. We are to work hard, yes, but also witness to the lost by displaying a life that is set apart. You might say, this is an impossible standard. And to be perfectly honest, it is. How can, I, how can we possibly keep up this way of life all the time? It's a great question. Doing this perfectly is impossible. But the moment that we receive the transformed life from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a change in us. The Spirit of God now indwells us and moves us away from a life characterized by sin. 1 John 3.9 says, no one, is, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin. He is born of God. This is an impossible standard, yes. But when we mess up, when we fail to meet it, the thought of doing so horrifies us that we turn to God in confession. We turn to God our Saviour, the one who has removed the sin as far as the east is from the west. We know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yes, his standard is impossible, but as believers, in order to adorn the doctrines of God in our lives, we are and we must pursue it fervently. All genuine Christians pursue the adornment of the doctrines of God. You know, also, when we fail to do these things perfectly, sometimes coming in humility and asking for forgiveness can be just about as great a witness and as powerful a testimony. Can I ask this week, be there any amongst us who have unconfessed sin before the Lord or things that you need to make right with your workmates? Please make the time to do that this week. Just finally, this week I, I heard of a story of these two Christian men who were the employers of an unbelieving gentleman. They spent countless hours debating and questioning this guy. And whenever there was an opportunity to do so, they would make the most of it. And one day in conversation, he said to them, how can you tell me I need to be saved when you two Christians live the way that you do? Humbled instantly, one of the men replied, listen to what I say, but don't look at what I do. What a shameful testimony that was. The right intention was there. 
from this guy trying to witness, but their lives did not display a God who has transformed sinners into saints. That should never be so of our lives. We want to say, listen to what I say and look at what I do. It is for the Lord. And we can do that faithfully by displaying submissiveness, a commitment to excellence, respectfulness, honesty and loyalty. All these things adorn the doctrines of God in our workplace. And we are to encourage one another in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Christ, Lord, who has drawn us out of darkness, Lord, and into your marvelous light. We thank you for that. We thank you that in him we we have a transformed life, Lord, that our sin is, is so horrifying to us. Lord, we confess it to you, and we know that you are just and faithful to forgive it of us. Lord, help us to be diligent in our workplace. Help us to be men and women of integrity. Lord, seeking to to work hard for your glory. Lord, that others might see this and in turn praise you for what you have done in our lives. We pray these things in your precious, holy, wonderful name now, Lord Jesus.